Welcome to another edition of American Countdown. What if I told you about a story that involved one of America's most notorious communist terrorists? A convicted one. One that was intended to serve almost 60 years in federal prison. One that was part of a special project to create a form of a brain or a mind or social control by the prison that she was originally located at. What if I told you that that story of a violent communist intersects with billionaire donors from the Buffett family, from the Soros family, from prominent San Francisco big tech millionaires and billionaires and lefty donors? What if I told you that, in fact, this individual was one of the controlling individuals for directing funds and for the creation and instigation of Black Lives Matter? This is the story of the unusual tale of how a notorious, violent, communist terrorist, by her own self-description, led to today having a major influential and institutional role in the direction of charitable dollars to Black Lives Matter in its creation, organization, instigation, and operation. But before we get to that story, let's talk about some of the other extraordinary events occurring today and yesterday around the world. We can start with the extraordinary case of the Supreme Court issuing two decisions this week. And the first also involves Mr. Soros. The case decision issued by the United States Supreme Court on June 29th, published to the world, is titled Agency for International Development, popularly known as AID, versus the Alliance for Open Society International Incorporated. Now, who might that be? Well, the Alliance for Open Society International Incorporated is heavily funded by the George Soros Open Society Foundation. Well, what, was, what were they doing up at the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, they were receiving substantial funds from the government. So this was another case of George Soros getting money from the government to undermine the government that he has promised to undermine publicly in a wide range of contexts. So you have that peculiarity. But what else were they doing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, it's because George Soros organizations refuse to say that they oppose sex trafficking. That's right. All that was required was Congress passed a law in 2003 saying that you will not receive monies from the United States unless, uh, for various charitable activities, unless, or public policy activities, unless you agree that to a policy explicitly opposing sex trafficking. Well, George Soros' organization refused to do so, and initially the U.S. Supreme Court said that the U.S. version of open society could, in fact, refuse to oppose sex trafficking and yet still get government dollars. The question was, would the same apply to the international version of the Open Society Foundation and, and its Alliance for an Open Society International? Well, of course, this also relates to issues relating to immigration and uh, relating to the travel ban. As the Supreme Court made clear, foreign citizens outside U.S. territories do not possess rights under the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution restrains what the United States government can do within its own borders and protects United States citizens wherever they may be. But what it does not do is protect citizens of every other country and every other nation, 
no matter where they are located, particularly when they are located outside of the continental or territorial United States. So that was the core legal ruling, and it said that Congress could therefore require George Soros's Open Society International Divisions to comply with a policy that requires they at least explicitly denounce sex trafficking if they're going to continue to receive government money. Imagine, for years now, George Soros organizations, a man that's a very wealthy man, billionaire, very politically active, has been getting money from the taxpayers to influence public policy around the world while refusing to denounce sex trafficking. That is the extraordinary position he was in. But after the Supreme Court decision this week, no more tax money for George Soros' international organizations, Alliance for Open Society International, unless he finally and his organization finally denounces sex trafficking, one of the wor world's worst worldwide whores. That wasn't the only big Supreme Court decision this week. The other was Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. And the significant part of this decision, issued June 30th, 2020, is finally it's a breakthrough to allow parents to pick the schools they want, even if those schools happen to be religiously oriented. For a long time, there's been a misapplication and misappropriation of the First Amendment doctrine that converted religious expression, the right to religious expression, because that's what the First Amendment protects, into a prohibition of religious expression if there is any tie in any way, shape, or form to the state. Indeed, the, this idea that the First Amendment is freedom from religion is not in the First Amendment. It is a freedom of religion. Now, it's a freedom of religious expression that precludes a state church from favoring and from the state favoring one religion over another, but it was never intended to be a provision to, to discriminate against religion. I had this exact argument with William Kunstler, a lawyer who I otherwise have respect for, when I was a young student at Yale University more than a quarter century ago. And what I argued with uh, Mr. Kunstler then was that his position on the First Amendment prohibited and punished religious expression. That it, that it basically treated people differently solely because of their religious affiliation or association. And that the point and purpose of the First Amendment was meant to be a protection of religious expression in all of its forms. It was not meant to be a means by which the state could institutionally oppress religion or discriminate against religion. Well, finally, the U.S. Supreme Court has come around to that exact same position that I argued for back when I was just a kid student at Yale against William Kunstler. In Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, the, the Montana government had basically made it impossible for you to use, uh, for you to uh, provide private scholarships to, for private school tuition and receive tax credits for that if what you were doing, if that money was going to a religious institution. Suit was brought saying that this no aid to religious schools provision discriminated against religious schools, as it clearly did. The Montana Supreme Court said that it was okay to discriminate against the religious schools because that's how it misinterpreted the First Amendment in the same way William Kunstler did with me 25 years ago. And the Supreme Court made clear what the law has always held and what the First Amendment should always provide for, which is that there is no basis to discriminate against a religious school, quote, simply because that is what it is. 
The what you can prohibit is the government giving money for the purpose of establishing a church, for the purpose of doing religious training of a particular religion, of favoring one religion over another. But what you cannot do is discriminate against someone simply because of their religious affiliation or association. And that is what these laws did. That's what many of these laws do right at the heart, right at the center of schooling and education in America, which has been revealed as being as important and significant as at any time when we look at how people currently are have a certain kind of indoctrination that reflects a limited perspective of the world based on an ideological orientation of the secular left of those people who are mostly anti-religious, anti-church, anti-institution, anti-spiritual, and in many cases, flat out just anti-American. People who have bought into the those who condemn and criticize American. Do you ever wonder why it is and how it is that the radical left is so at ease with radical Islamic fundamentalism? Because what they share in common is denunciation of uh, evangelical Christianity. What they share in common is denunciation of Judaism. What they share in common is denunciation in particular of America. That they're more driven by their venomous hatred for America than they are their own ideas and ideals of tolerance, openness, uh, freedom of thought, freedom of ideas, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, or even in their particular case in parts of the left, their opposition to religion magically vanishes when the religion is radical Islam, even though it is likely the most dangerous uh, ideological application of religion in the state atmosphere in the modern world. So this decision was a critical decision because it reopens the state coffers and reopens the tax benefits and tax credits to anyone, regardless of the fact that they may want to go to a religious school and get tax benefits in that way. Ultimately, this has implications for vouchers. It has implications for private scholarships and tax-funded scholarships in a wide range of contexts. It means religions, religious schools are back in a meaningful way. This decision probably is far more impactful than the decision that people had been critical of, either in the abortion context or employment discrimination context, because this goes to the core to the ability to educate our own kids the way we choose and to incorporate a religious component of that and not be discriminated against solely because of our religious association or affiliation. This decision has far broader and wider reaching effects than many of the decisions that got the higher and broader attention. So those two decisions the Supreme Court issued are those that uh, are were issued because of the appointees of President Trump. So it is another effect to prevail in that context. But now let's go to our bigger story tonight, and this is an extraordinary case uh, involving, and it starts with a young woman, uh, no longer that young, but was at one time, Susan Lisa Rosenberg. Now, she started out as a, a young, uh, sort of young middle-class family in Manhattan, went to an elite left-leaning uh, private schools, the Walden School and then uh, Barnard, Barnard College, went on to become a <clears throat> drug counselor at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. Someone became involved in the practice of Chinese medicine, and from there, uh, she became even was an anti-drug counselor and acupuncturist and at health centers in Harlem. But somewhere along that way, she ended up going down a radical left-wing path. Indeed, by her own self-description in her book about entitled American Radical, she became a far-left revolutionary terrorist. So this isn't you know the the Marxist, communist, far-left terrorist. These labels are not labels others have imposed upon her. 
These are labels that often she herself has publicly embraced or the organizations that she was a part of publicly embraced. Her key organization was the May 19th Communist Organization, formed in the, in the 1970s. That was active throughout the night, late 1960s, the 70s, and in the early 80s. They were co-complicit with the Black Liberation Army, which was itself a spinoff of the Black Panther Party and was also itself connected to the Algerian and Vietnamese communist movements, openly and overtly. In fact, the Vietnamese embassy in Algeria was given to Eldridge Cleaver, who was the co-founder of the Black Liberation Army. But that isn't, uh, and then they took their violent action to a whole new level. So whereas other people have, uh, you know, you look at, say, something like Weather Underground or the Students for Democratic Society, some of those were not nearly as violent as the May 19th Communist Organization. Several of those were not as overtly communist as the May 19th Communist Organization. What she did throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s became very active in all the far-left causes, including feminism, including the Puerto Rican quote-unquote independence movement, which was often also violent and terroristic during that time period, uh, was connected, of course, to the Weather Underground and other revolutionary organizations. But she was one of the most successful Marxist terrorists in history. And to give you an idea, she was involved in the bombing of the United States Capitol, the bombing of the United States Naval War College, the bombing of the New York Patrolman's Benev uh, Benevolent Association, and most notoriously was connected to the famous robbery, the Brinks robbery that led to the death of multiple police officers, was connected to breaking out people from jails and prisons on a routine basis, including those who are currently today still on the lamp is associated and affiliated with some of the most wanted people in the world and on the most wanted list of the FBI. She was a fugitive through most of the 70s and early 80s because she had already been identified as one of the top criminal terrorists in the, in the history of the United States. The only reason she wasn't more well-known is a lot of her efforts didn't lead to many deaths. That's it. That because their bombs had limited effect and impact by coincidence often and by timing, she's not more famous and infamous and didn't go end up with a death penalty. She was a fugitive for many years and was arrested only in 1984 with an accomplice when she was unloading 740 pounds of dynamite and weapons from uh, a car into a storage locker in New Jersey. Convicted of the explosive possession and given the recognition of her long-standing, criminally violent, multi-decade history of extraordinary levels of violence, she received a 58-year federal prison sentence. Now, how did, uh, why is she still not there today, given that happened way back in the mid-80s? In the mid-80s, still, she still would be serving time under that prison sentence. Two reasons. First, she was one of the first two inmates of the high-security unit, a high-security isolation unit in the basement of the Federal Correctional Institution, they call it FCI, at Lexington, Kentucky. There was a wide-ranging allegations about what that high-security unit was all about. It led to multiple lawsuits involving the ACLU and Amnesty International. A court would later call it a living tomb, 
a deliberately and gratuitously oppressive location and place. It was ordered closed. It was so bad. It was ordered closed by a federal judge. And why uh, was all that? Well, there have long been allegations that this was, in fact, an experimental underground prison practicing mind control techniques on high-profile political targets. Not just isolation or sensory deprivation, but 24-hour surveillance, strip searches, all the kinds of uh, control over visitor access, control over exercise. Many of the things we've heard about from MKUltra, they were trying on these targeted political prisoners to see how successful certain forms of mental and psychological torture, certain forms of mind control could effectively change uh, behavior. And so that led to a more sympathetic perception of Rosenberg in certain parts of the legal world. Rosenberg would serve time all across the country. She would develop a master's degree in Antioch uh, from Antioch University. She would uh, uh, become a, more of a writer, uh, and she would uh, become very active in activism concerning AIDS. So how is she out on the streets? Well, in 2001, 17 years or so into her prison term, President Bill Clinton, on his very last day in office, there were two very controversial moves he made. One was he pardoned, famously, Mark Rich, who had given a very large donation to make sure that happened through various family members and friends. And his other one was he commuted the sentence of Rosenberg so that she would be immediately released. New York officials were outraged. Police officials were outraged. FBI officials were outraged. They pointed out her long history and some of the most violent criminality in history in the, of the United States, in the modern history of the United States, that she was to the left what some of the worst Klansmen were to the 1960s civil rights movement of the South, and to a certain degree had been more successful for a longer period of time in terroristic violence than even the Klan had managed to be in the 1960s in the South. So she was someone who they did not even pursue a bunch of charges that they believed they could prosecute her for because they thought she was already going to serve 58 years anyway. Instead, however, to the shock of some of her of those who knew her, she gets released by President Bill Clinton on his very last day in office. She would then become an activist, and quickly the foundation world, the money that creates the funds for many of these activists to politically agitate, uh, be, uh, actually quickly came to the rescue of Rosenberg. She began, she taught criminal justice and literature at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. She was an adjunct professor. She would be offered a teaching position at Hamilton College. And ultimately, she would find herself right at the center of the, of the foundation world at an organization called Thousand Currents, an organization that itself had actually been named something else for 30 years prior, but for political convenience purposes, changed its name in 2015. So that gives you some idea of who Rosenberg is, what her background is, the scope and scale of her activities. You can go to Influence Watch and learn more about her. It talks about how she's a convicted uh, domestic terrorist, radical left-wing activist, You've spent protesting war and racism in America, a member of Weather Underground, a member of other radical organizations which used violence as its tool for political change, was involved in 
uh, all kinds of explosives and weapons and bombings and various forms of assaults. She was the likely, may have been the likely getaway driver in the infamous Brinks uh, car, armored car robbery that left one guard and two officers dead, uh, connected to the escape of a wide range of uh, prisoners and uh, criminals, many of whom would ultimately escape any justice at all. And this included the uh, uh, various people involved with and connected to the Brinks robbery. So, for example, uh, one of the, she was part of the organization that did the Brinks robbery in 1981, the May 19th organiza- communist organization. It included members of the Black Liberation Army. It also included this criminal coalition known as the Family, was organized in part by Tupac Shakur's stepfather. So imagine that. Tupac, Tupac is connected to all of this. That is how you get Tupac's stepdad when it was part of the organizations and associations pushing this. They were pushing a, quote, new Africa movement to create their own state. Where have we heard that recently? To create your own state, a racialized justice movement, a movement about defunding police, a movement about reconstructing society, a movement justifying violent change and violent resistance. She would then go on to all her wide range of criminality and other allegations of violent course of conduct before getting caught and then getting the extraordinary commutation and the ability to be outside of the political uh, process in a meaningful manner, to be outside of facing criminal prosecution and criminal punishment for what she had done and did. Now, her involvement in the Thousand Currents organization goes to the fact that Thousand Currents was originally known as the International Development Exchange, IDEX. It is a long-standing, left-leaning organization from the mid-1980s, and its organization was the principal one that sponsored, from the, from the get-go, the Black Lives Matter movement. Shows that millions of dollars earmarked just for the Black Lives Matter movement. It was the principal and primary organization helping to do so. One of the primary organizations using the, uh, the George Floyd death to instigate riots around the world. That gives you an idea for what that background is. To give you some additional context, the other individual that she's connected to, the FBI's most wanted terrorist list for several decades, born Joanne Deborah Byron, but known to the world now as Asada Shakur, convicted for murder, uh, and connected to the entire organization. This was someone who, in 1977, was charged with first-degree murder, second-degree murder, atrocious assault and battery, assault and battery against a police officer, assault with a deadly weapon, assault with intent to kill, illegal possession of a weapon, armed robbery. That's who she was. And the she murdered a state trooper, Werner Forster, during a shootout on the New Jersey Turnpike in 1973. She was a critical person that was part of the Black Panther movement as well. Uh, born in Flushing, New York, grew up in New York City, in Queens, became involved early on, again at city and community colleges, took on a different name, joined the Black Liberation Army after being a critical member of the Black Panther Party, and would spend years committing a wide range of criminally violent conduct, 
and trying to help organize political revolution in the United States. Armed robbery, bank robbery, kidnapping, attempted murder, murder. That's the kind of background she had. She was serving a life sentence for murder when Rosenberg, along with a few others, and her organization helped her escape from the Clinton Correctional Facility for Women in 1979, where they smuggled her out of the country to Cuba, where she has lived ever since. She remains one of the most wanted criminals and terrorists in the history of, of the United States to this very day. So if we look at it from that perspective, we understand that here you have someone in Rosenberg who's one, been one of the most influential, violent, political activists, communists in American history, and she sits at the centerpiece of raising money because she's one of the vice presidents, one of the vice, key people on the board of the Thousand Currents organization who helped instigate funding for the Black Lives Matter, who helped put Black Lives Matter on the platform and gave it its, its, uh, gave it its platform to be able to advocate and make the changes it wanted to make. The, just as the co-founders of Black Lives Matter have ties to African witchcraft religions and ties to uh, overt ties to Marxist organizations, that's why they focus a lot on immigration. Uh, they're very anti the black church, anti the black business community, because they oppose capitalism as a form of op economic operation. They have uh, personal religious disagreements with the black church and because they're rooted in a sort of radical, violent ideology that it's no surprise that, that this uh, individual was connected to. And for that context, it's probably useful to go back in time and realize that a lot of what we're seeing in the Black Lives Matter movement, what we're seeing in the infiltration of Hollywood, infiltration of uh, marketing departments, infiltration of advertising departments, infiltration of teachers, infiltration of universities, reflects an old Communist Party idea. And it's called the Popular Front. Indeed, you can read it on left and communist and Marxist websites today. I'm looking at an article called The Popular Front, Rethinking the Communist Party of the United States of America's History. And it talks about the Communist Party of the United States was the largest and most influential radical organization active in the social movements of the 1930s and 1940s. It talks about that while a never a mass party by the standards of the French or the Italians, the U.S. had a, a Communist Party had a significant and real influence. Indeed, until the 19, late 1960s, uh, most uh, historians recognized this, though trying to relegate it to the Cold War context, often understated and undervalued and trivialized the in extraordinary reach of the communist movement of the 20s and 30s in influencing other movements. And, indeed, and that's what the Popular Front was all about. The idea of the Popular Front was to use other organizations to influence uh, politics while keeping the communist origin and orientation of those organizations hidden. As the article talks about the Communist Party's popular front policies, adapted after the Seventh World Congress of the Communist International in 1935, provide a model for U.S. radical politics in the United States in the post-Depression years and even up to today. Indeed, that the thought process was that they could help consolidate a new bureaucracy and 
uh, recreate a, a radical communist uh, ideology by disguising its influence as something else, like, say, Black Lives Matter or social justice or the Black Liberation Army or the Black Panther Party or uh, the Puerto Rican independence movement or you name it. They note that the communists faced stark choices in the mid-1930s. They could either submerge their political identities and participate in the organization of other labor and civil liberties organizations of the time, left-leaning organizations of the time, or they could remain on the outside as principled but unheeded critics. They could accept that they could either, that's what was their choice. Instead, they decided to make, quote, anti-fascist unity. Hmm, where have you heard that before? Anti-fascist unity. Indeed, for almost all of the ideas we're seeing today and seeing and using the popular front, uh, disguised as anti-fascist, uh, rallying behind causes of race and social justice, using influence in the mind-shaping institutions of academia, of the educational world, of the advertising world, of the culture-shaping Hollywood world, of the social media world, that you know, all of those ideas, all of those methodologies, all those modes of operation date back to the 1930s. You can read about it in the debates in the Seventh World Congress of the Communist International in 1935, where they're debating and discussing which direction to go in, how to best uh, influence and shape the world, how best to spread radical ideas and radical ideology, and how to disguise it as something else to make it more palatable and popular and thus influential before anybody could realize or recognize the kind of Manchurian candidate that had key positions of power all over economic, political, and cultural life, even potentially military life. And so the article goes through how they constructed militant and organizations, uh, infiltrated uh, unions, infiltrated uh, schools, inf infiltrated other, quote-unquote, social movements. They said that the whole goal was, quote, to help create uh, ethno-religious, racial, and gender divisions within the working class and promote the development of a, a culture of struggle, so to speak, that could unite them into the communist cause in its stead, to, to by divide, conquer, uh, and to conquer by disguise. Sort of, it was disguise and divide. That was sort of the mode of operation, the method of interaction uh, in this context. And it goes through the long, extensive, expansive history of how a small group of activists ended up being disproportionately influential, including in the State Department, parts of the U.S. military, large parts of American culture, Hollywood, schools, universities, etc. And they were able to sort of create that possibility by doing what they did. Indeed, you can look at this up as, so, as part of Soviet history. You can look it up in Michigan State and elsewhere where they talk about popular front and the 17 movements in Soviet history that reflect the popular front. They mentioned the 1930s were a decade of danger and opportunity for the Soviet Union as the international communist movement represented by the Comintern. Even before the onset of the Great Depression, the Comintern predicted a great crisis of capitalism. So they adopted a militant strategy that renounced coalitions. Instead, and instead of coalitions, they would just simply infiltrate those associations and organizations and help take them over in the form of a popular front. Popular because the organizations are already independently have a social political base separate from the communists. Also part of a front because they're a front for their own actual ideas uh, and organization. Indeed, they noted the Comintern persisted with the idea of a popular front approach, 
united under the disguise that they were being anti-fascist as the approach in Europe and the United States through large parts of the 1930s. They explain how this policy ultimately led to successful entry of the Soviet Union to the League of Nations in 1934, how it basically allowed them to achieve a wide range of diplomatic successes because people were paying less attention to the manner and method in which they were infiltrating these organizations and institutions uh, and go through the entire process of how they helped prop up and shore up various forms of uh, corrupted governments for the purposes of having those governments ideally collapse in ways that they could in turn use for their own benefit. So that sort of popular front mindset and mentality is part of is what the Rosenberg and others grew up in uh, in the 1960s and 70s. It, it, but they simply chose a more radicalized path because they believed, based on the Che Guevara and Fidel Castro experiments in Cuba, that the more effective means and the more effective mechanisms of infiltration was to have radicalization rather and violence uh, from outside the system rather than trying to infiltrate it from inside the system. And that is where you get the May 19th Communist Organization, the Black Liberation Organization, various forms of left, the, the various red organizations, as they were called uh, in uh, Italy and in the Red Brigades and others in Germany, that that's what helped the, the, the 60s and the 70s was a reaction to the perceived failure of the popular front strategy to create the best uh, uh, opportunity for political revolution in the minds of the far left. What has happened today is they've integrated the two. They figured out they needed both. That if they had an Antifa, a BLM, a violent street movement, they could enforce their uh, ideology by those means while at the same time creating an, a popular front, infiltrating uh, existing organizations. Where has the ACLU gone, for example, uh, into basically being part of their uh, social justice, quote unquote, movement? And that's how you get to things like the Brinks robbery. The Brinks robbery is commonly regarded as one of the most extraordinary and dangerous uh, robberies in the history of the country. It will probably not surprise people that some of the people involved and connected with it involved members of the Boston underworld. But they were not the only ones. It turned out that a key component of the Brinks robbery was, in fact, these radicals who had been part of it from the inception. And so the uh, and ended up involved in uh, horrendous acts that ultimately led to the murder and the deaths of several officers, and it thus became sort of famous for that reason. So if we go to the uh, next uh, topic in, the, in that same context, we can look at it to understand why the popular front uh, was rejected for this radicalization. There's a good piece, and again, another Marxist publication or left-leaning publication, Jacobin called the popular front didn't work and it describes why they thought it failed when it, and it, what needed to happen was more radical violence but again that's understanding what was happening in the 60s and 70s what's happening today is they're recreating a combination of what happened in the 30s and 40s with what happened in the 60s and 70s to recreate american society and many of these people by the way are still on the wanted list dona borup one of the members of the uh organization, the, the communist organization, uh, self-described communist organization, with Rosenberg is still out on the lamp. In fact, several of them. In fact, here's this headline from NBC New York. Two women terrorists still evade justice decades later. 
And yet here you have one of the principal primary participants getting uh, getting her sentence commuted and never required to give up or disclose where her compadres are to this very day. There was suggestions that several of them may have also escaped to Cuba. It's uh, notable that, again, several of the people involved and connected to this were also escaped prisoners from the 70s because that's one of the things these organizations did. Uh, it's one of the things that Rosenberg's organization did, help people escape jail, help people escape prison. Are we seeing something similar today between what's happening under COVID and then what was happening with BLM? The past is indeed prologue. You can read all about the May 19th communist organization. Even Wikipedia has a page for it. Dealing with their openly Marxist-Lenist, uh, anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-sexist. Many of its founders still out and about. Uh, the In terms of, uh, of both Elizabeth Duke and uh, Kathy, uh, well, and there's also the other founders involved, Kathy Bowden and others. Now, they note the organization's ties to the Weather Underground, to the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee, that they took their inspiration from Ho Chi Minh, uh, that they uh, backed were backed by and sort of helped founded by the Black Panthers, the connection to the Black Liberation Army, their internationalist ori orientation. Their goal was to free political prisoners in the U.S. prisons. That turned out to be almost anyone. Appropriate, quote-unquote, capitalist wealth, wealth that would justify their armed robberies. Initiate a series of bombings and terrorist attacks over half a decade. Uh, indeed, these were people that were like the Unabomber, except they put off a lot more bombs in a lot bigger places. The only difference was they didn't kill at quite as many people. So the that was that the, they weren't trying to be lethal, and in some cases it's simply accidental that they weren't as lethal as they could have been. But you're talking about a series of bombings, bombings of the National War College, the Wave Washington Navy Yard, the Israeli Aircraft Industries Building, the, the New York City embassies, the Washington Navy Yard Officers Club, the New York, uh, the, the New York one in the U.S. Capitol Building we've already mentioned. Elizabeth Ann Duke, one of the co-founders, remains at large to this day, maybe with the help of Rosenberg, who was able to get out early and to get out lightly. They talk about all the different prisoners they helped break out. They talk about the Brinks armored car robbery. They talk about other armed robberies into the millions of dollars. They talk about how different places they bombed and they triggered the bombs and that they did that over about an 18-month time period. And remember, she got caught putting uh, over 100 blasting caps, over 200 sticks of dynamite, more than 100 cartridges of gel explosive, and 24 bags of blasting agent into a warehouse. Have you under, uh, ever wondered why it is you don't haven't heard of her much? And do you wonder what, how it could be a coincidence that she ends up on the Thousand Currents group that was the key funder, financier, instigator, organizer for the Black uh, Lives Matter movement? Do you ever wonder why BLM seemed to uh, echo the rhetoric of both the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army? Maybe that uh, that's all isn't exactly a coincidence. So that is the sort of context in which this organization took off, in which she was present, in which BLM became the movement that it became. And once you recognize that, once you realize that, that's when you realize we have a different dynamic. So then what that should lead you to, uh, quite naturally, is what exactly is the history of the various thousand current movements that are helping to put her in a position of power and, in turn, 
help put Black Lives Matter on the map. Well, for that, we want to go to the Discover the Networks org and to Influence Watch, two good organizations, and sort of take a look at it and see what it all means. Well, first, if we go to Thousand Currents and we go to Influence Watch, it describes Thousand Currents as having been recently retitled, used to be known as something else. So they're trying to sort of shift the title organizations the way uh, a lot of uh, charitable foundations for their political, real political objective. They're as good at hiding the full scale of what they're up to as money launderers are. Indeed, money launderers for the major drug cartels could take some lessons from some of the charitable found, quote unquote, charitable foundations that the left operates in the United States. As Influence Watch details, Thousand Currents is a left-of-center grant-making organization that provides financial assistance to left-leaning projects, organizations, and activists around the world. And look at who it's funded by, the Kellogg Foundation. By the way, Kellogg Foundation was founded by a conservative who wanted to resist socialism, but he didn't have. Uh, but after he died, what do you think happened? Because of the Popular Front ideology, the left recognizes that they needed to infiltrate foundations, infiltrate academia, infiltrate marketing departments, infiltrate human resources departments, infiltrate the places that determine and shape people's minds, shape people's thoughts, that do the training for the employees, that do the cultural conditioning for television, that do the education for children and young people create and infiltrate those institutions, including in foundations. So the Kellogg Foundation, an organization started to be anti-left, is now one of the most prominent left organizations. The same is true for the Packard Foundation, the Wallace Global Fund, one of the more leftist organizations, the Novo Foundation, and the Libra Foundation. These are the co-coordinate groups. You often see these foundations giving to other foundations and then giving to another foundation. It makes it hard to track and trace who's doing what, where, and why. But that, and so the fact that the Thousand Currents is organized that way, operates that way, tells you a lot about it right away. Indeed, they've been deeply involved in BLM, were deeply involved in the Dakota Access oil pipeline protest, and deeply involved in similar kind of protest organizations and activities around the world. It is the Thousand Currents organization that put Rosenberg in such a critical position of influence. So as you dig deeper, you're trying to find out, well, who exactly is Thousand Currents? Where, you know, where was their original foundation? Who sort of created them? Who helped organize them in the first place? Where did they help come from? Given that as of June 2020, the vice chair of Thousand Currents Board of Directors was Susan Rosenberg, a former member of the Weather Underground, the May 19th communist organization who spent 16 years in federal prison of her 58-year federal prison sentence until it was commuted by President Clinton. How does that even happen without people noticing or commenting or saying something about it? Well, for that, you have to dig in a little bit deeper. For there, you have to go back and look further at exactly what is taking place, look at the annual reports, look at efforts to discover the networks, and if we go to the 2017, uh, of various the, the Threshold Foundation is one of the contributors. We can look at the Vanguard Public Foundation, the International Development Exchange, which was the original name of Thousand Currents, and start to uncover who and what they are. Well, if we go back and look at the Thousand Currents predecessor name, International Development Exchange, and we start digging in, we find some very interesting names. 
Now, by the way, the these organizations are pushing for indigenous control. They want them headed by women and young people, indigenous leaders. They want a they have a theory of change that would be to completely replace existing economic and political systems. They have a quote food sovereignty program that is about redistributing agrarian reforms. We sort of experienced that both China and Cuba and some other in Russia did not quite work out so well. But if you dig in deeper and you keep finding their history and their connection, you see them involved in certain international politics, certain uh, domestic politics. You have to continue to look to find out, well, who exactly is the real background, the real foundation of these organizations? Who is it that's helped funding it? Who's the one that's helped making it a reality? Well, for that, you dig in further. You find there's connections to the Vanguard Public Foundation. Well, that's interesting because the Vanguard Public Foundation was forced to close because they connected key people involved with it were running Ponzi schemes. But they, but up until that point, had been very successful at community building, uh, hiring professional consultants for grant support, running social justice sabbatical funds, and being integral to a wide range of correlated and uh, or similarly organized groups across the country. So then you have to keep digging further. You have to keep digging down and abroad to see who exactly a lot of these folks are connected to, who exactly the people pushing them and backing them and supporting them want. Well, you ultimately will find connections to uh, Medea Benjamin and others that helped form Global Exchange, and Global Exchange was a, another, quote-unquote, human rights group whose main organizing principle is opposing the United States and Israel. So you're getting a little bit better sense, but it still doesn't have the same political ties or political connection that you might be anticipating, that you might try to uh, be able to figure out. And when you dig deeper, what you find is that, in fact, one of the main people connected to all of this, one of the main families connected to all of this is the Buffett family. Indeed, it turns out the Buffett family was one of the original core founders and sponsors of several of these critical organizations and associations. That that's when you find out what's really been going on through this time period. And so that helps educate you and inform you as to what is happening. And that allows you some sense of what's taking place, why it's taking place, and how it's taking place. It's what takes us from a 1980s communist terrorist arrest to 2020 BLM riots and looting in the same name, in the same vein. That's how that strange story has a modern ending. And it helps explain what's been happening and why it's been happening. It's simply a new popular front strategy with a new disguise and a new guise, backed simply by some of the wealthiest, powerful, ideologically motivated families in the world, using the collective aggregate skill set of one of the most successful domestic terrorists in American history, and incorporating the popular front program that the Soviet Union and the International Communist Party and the Comintern decided was wise back at the Seventh World Congress in 1935. What, what has gone before will come again. Those who do not know their history are bound to repeat it. Don't be one of those bound to repeat it. Learn from it, understand it, predict it, forecast it, 
and thus and act accordingly to be able to push back against it. That's how a communist terrorist ended up being a centerpiece organizer in what we're seeing today. And some billionaires and key people in key positions of power helped make it possible. The only way to push back against it is to be informed about it, be educated about it, and share that information with others and take knowledgeable political action to push back and resist as our forefathers did, not only centuries ago, but in some of these contexts and cases just decades ago. Thanks for being with us, and we welcome you to another edition tomorrow of American Countdown. When do you think the people should be able to like talk again? The pe- the deep oh, person. Oh yeah, 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 that's a good pre- that's a good question. Um, well, Alex Jones at least has infowars.com. He could do yeah, his own thing, own. and people go to that. And Gavin's got a show still. Does he? Yeah, you know, as someone who's kind of for all for free speech, I often get told that I'm bad because I and I have to defend people whose language I don't agree with. That is what free speech is it's not defending everyone who says things that i love it doesn't make any sense because that means you're right all the time like if you're only defending the things that you believe in yeah you you write all the time about everything but i have to defend the people who say things that are even atrocious and that i can't i would never get on board with because in that's what free speech is otherwise And like you said, it is that slippery slope of who gets to be the arbiter of what is said. Right. And what are your what are your guidelines? Alex Jones is funnier than Andy Kaufman's ever been. Alex Jones is f-ing hilarious. Often. Did you see often. the whole Bill H- that he's Bill Hicks? Yeah. No, Conspiracy. That's not real. I went down that, that rabbit hole. So, that's the silliest. Shit ever. I know, but there are videos. But he had a one thing <laughs> we're talking about, like if uh, it's between his family starving. Or eating his neighbor. He's oh, I like, know. I'll eat your ass. I and thought... so it became this jack. Come on. I will eat your ass. Do you don't think there's an entertainment value in him saying he's going to eat my his neighbor? Fire. Right. But there's something to that. Like to to stop that and ban that. You're you're not you're not stopping anyone from you're not you're not stopping anybody from anything bad by not having Alex. Do this entertaining thing about eating his neighbor. You're not saving anybody. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you gotta, you, you gotta. Like, what are you doing? Like, what is he doing that's so awful? I don't know how to fix any of it. This it's it's entertaining. Like, why is it only acceptable if you have some kind of entertainment? Because there's so many rap videos that you could watch that I enjoy, but they're talking about shooting people and robbing people, and it's. Everywhere on YouTube, yeah. it's so prevalent, yeah. and somehow or another, that's okay. Like it's fucking weird what's allowed and what's not allowed.
Hey guys, Rob Dew here with InfoWarsStore.com, and I want to tell you about something that I think has really helped me out and I think can help you out too, especially if you have any problems sleeping, and that's knockout. Let's face it, our life patterns have been disrupted by this lockdown, this government-imposed imprisonment, and it has definitely affected my sleep schedule. But one thing that has helped is knockout. I take one pill about an hour before I want to go to bed, and boom, I get a great night's sleep. And just this past Memorial Day, I took two of them, fell asleep about 1 a.m., woke up at 8 a.m., ready to go. It really has made a difference in my life, and it can make a difference in your life, too. If you don't get any sleep, you're going to be a grouch. If you get great sleep, you're going to be on point. You're going to be mentally focused. You're going to be ready to take on the day. And right now, Knockout is 50% off. It's less than $15 a bottle. You get 30 capsules. Give it a try today. It's at a great price right now, and it can really help you get the sleep you need, especially in these tough times. It's Knockout, and it's available at InfoWarsStore.com. This is your emergency broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge. At the siren, all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 hours. Your government thanks you for your participation. We played a lot of purge games this evening. We have just one more. It's called Mommy's Choice. Which one of you will survive this year's purge? The soul of our country is at stake. The purge targets the poor and the innocent. Blessed be America for letting us purge and cleanse our souls. Join me as we eliminate evil. Purge and It's finally here. Introducing the new Survival Shield X2 Spray. Available now for 33% off at InfoWarsStore.com. Listeners have been asking us for months to develop an iodine spray made with our exclusive Deep Earth Crystal Nascent Iodine. Our proprietary new Aerodyne technology allows us to harness the full power of ancient iodine crystals from 7,000 feet below the Earth's surface into the ultimate spray formula. Iodine is an essential mineral that helps support thyroid health, healthy metabolism, and healthy cognitive function. Get the new Survival Shield X2 spray for 33% off intro pricing at InfoWarsStore.com. That's Survival Shield X2 spray at InfoWarsStore.com.